Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by Robert P. Baird, a freelance writer and editor who's held editorial positions at The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Esquire and Harper's Magazine, and has a PhD from the University of Chicago. And for our purposes, he is the author of a recent Guardian long read titled The Invention of Whiteness, The Long History of a Dangerous Idea. Bobby, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Bobby, you were born in New York, raised in California. You're clearly American. Tell me a little bit about how and when the concept of whiteness entered your lexicon. Oh, gosh, it probably wasn't uh, until I went to graduate school in my 20s that I started to think about whiteness as whiteness, really. Um, of course, by that point, I'd already had plenty of experience with it, but I don't think I knew what to call it, really, until I got to academia. And so what does it mean today to you? I mean, I, I obviously, uh, in your article, you say, speaking of whiteness, that it resembles time as seen by St. Augustine. We presume we understand it as long as we're not asked to explain it, but it becomes inexplicable as soon as we're put to the test. So here, here we go. That's my first <laughs> test to you there, Bobby. What does the term whiteness mean to you? Uh, well, you know, the, the brilliant sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois compared it to a religion. Um, at the start of the 20th century, he talked about the new religion of whiteness, and he said it was a very modern thing. Um, in university, I studied religious studies, and so I'm, I'm quite fond of that comparison. I don't think it's an exact one, but I think it's a pretty good analogy in the sense that whiteness is, on the one hand, an idea and a set of beliefs about the world, um, but it's also a set of practices, and it's a set of social relations and ways that we relate to one another. And so it's this very complicated nexus of both beliefs, you know, ways that we live our lives. Um, and, you know, at this point in time, after three or 400 years, it has also led to real material facts in the world. So you can read evidence of whiteness in, you know, bank accounts. You can look at it in the way that cities are drawn uh, and neighborhoods are drawn. Um, so it's, it is this very complicated series of interrelated um, phenomena. So you say that you first kind of discovered it as part of your lexicon um, in grad school. That's um, right. And so presumably that's part of kind of an academic inquiry. But I think um, correct me if I'm wrong, but for most of us who who sort of are who are racialized as white, but then learn about whiteness as from an academic perspective, it doesn't stay academic for that long, though, does it? No, and in fact, you know, you very quickly, the reason why it's such a powerful uh, frame is because you're able to read it back into your life before that and to see, oh, right, this is exactly what was happening. So, you know, I'm in my early 40s now. Um, I sort of came of age at a time in the late 90s when there was not very much attention to whiteness as such um, outside of academia. And it really was, we were in this period where whiteness was treated as a sort of default identity. Um, 
And so, you know, it just wasn't one of these things that was around in the way that it has been in the past, say, five years. Mm. And so for you, has that meant a change in your own self-perception in how you navigate the world? Uh, certainly. But I mean, I think it goes beyond that. So, you know, right when I got out of college, I went to work at a nonprofit organization um, in a city called East Palo Alto, which is at the really at the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, but it's about a quarter white. It's one of the poorer areas in the Bay Area in California. Um, and, you know, I think one of the one of the kind of paradigmatic experiences for people who are racialized as white to start to see themselves as white is to be in a place where they're in the minority, because right. in many places um, in the United States and, you know, I assume in the UK as well, they are the numerical majority. And so it's easier for them just to kind of not to see any sort of, you know, not to really see whiteness. And I think for a long time, certainly for people of my generation, that was the experience was you just whiteness was something that you didn't see. It was there. It was omnipresent. And we, you know, when you think about it, you can realize the ways in which it really does affect every aspect of your life. But it was not visible always. Mm. And and so when you have started to uh, see whiteness uh, a little bit more clearly, it started to, to, to become something you can distinguish. Um, what has it looked like to you? And I ask this because, um, you know, I watched a film uh, probably as, as, as a child or a teenager. Um, you might, I can't even remember what the title of it is. It's Sandra Bullock, classic. Um, she uh, is part of an American family that adopts uh, an African-American child who then goes on to become uh, a star American football player. Uh, is this ringing any bells? The blind side. Is it the, <laughs> the blind, blind side? The blind yeah. side. Yep. Uh, well, the blind side for me was a really interesting experiment in uh, kind of an evolution in my understanding of whiteness. Like the first time I watched it, I was fully guilty of just thinking, oh, you know, what a what a lovely story of, you know, of, you know, the, 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 the true overcoming of, of, of difference and the, the way love can unite. And then watching it the second time and um, particularly a scene where Sandra Bullock has, is looking for uh, her adoptive son and she goes into the neighborhood uh, that, that, that his biological mother uh, lives in looking for him and she pulls up in this fancy car with her gun in her handbag and she storms up to the door and everything in the scene is there designed to make you think like oh my god this poor white woman you know in this neighborhood and the second time I watched it with uh, a few of my friends I, I was super conscious of the racial dynamic and suddenly was like imagine how terrifying it would be to have this like crazy crazed white woman gun-toting white woman turn up on your doorstep banging your door down demanding to enter um and there was no recognition for example um that that might be the subjectivity of anyone in the film um so it's just one example and i raise it to sort of say as you kind of start to pick whiteness apart in your own life i feel like it does at least in glimpses, I wouldn't claim that the, the, the blinkers are ever fully removed, but you start to see certain scenes differently and you start to see whiteness differently. Um, you know, when I read Bell Hooks talking about whiteness as being something very terrifying for her as a child, you know, walking into white neighborhoods was a really scary experience for her. These were visions of whiteness that I did not feel like I had been exposed to. And as an adult that I hadn't made the effort to uh, seek to understand. Um, 
so what is what does whiteness look like to you as you've uncovered it? Um, you know, I think one of the things that people who are racialized as white have to do is to really, um, there's a real instinct at first when you start to think about whiteness to be done with it. You know, there's kind of first recognition of like, oh my gosh, this is happening. This has been going on all my life. I can see it all. And I think for a lot of people, there's almost an allergic reaction of like, this makes me really uncomfortable and I'm not, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't want to do it. I want to kind of move on to the next step. And so very often you see that kind of jump to like, oh, I just want, like, I don't see color. I, I just believe in the universal humanity of everybody, which are, you know, which is a good thing to believe. But I think there is that real instinct to kind of move beyond. Like, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to think about it. I think for me, you know, what was important was to really understand the depth of the history of the racial, um, you know, the racial system of domination and, and to understand that this is not just something that you can turn off with a switch or say, you know, I'm not going to see color and therefore I can just live my life as if it doesn't exist. Um, you know, while at the same time maintaining in your head, the fact, which I believe is a fact that whiteness really is, an idea. It's not, you know, it's not a biological reality. It's not um, something that's fundamentally immutable. Um, it came into being at a time and place, and you know, it's very easy to imagine a world in which it doesn't exist, even if it's much more difficult difficult to imagine how we get there. Mm. Um, so I think, really, you know, kind of realizing that, like, you can't just brush it off, and you can't just say, ah, oh, well, you know this was horrible. It was bad, bad that happened, but that was then and this is now and let's move on. And, and I think getting past that initial instinct is really an important part of um, coming to grips with what whiteness is in the world. And did you have any gripes about writing this piece about whiteness? Any gripes in what sense? Like any concerns that, of course. you know, yes, yeah. of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what were some of your, what were Yeah, some? I mean, you know, one of the, one of the things that really interested me and one of the things I wanted to get at in the piece is like where, where we've had, we'd seen a lot of attention to whiteness in the previous five years, as I sort of mentioned, kind of in the previous 10 years, there was just this kind of amazing outpouring of, journalism and art and film, um, just in, in every arena, kind of this renewed attention to whiteness and what it, what it is, what it has been, what it does to us. Um, but what seemed to me sort of missing was like, where are we taking this? Are we envisioning a world in which whiteness is, you know, white people are kind of one of this rainbow coalition of many people, you know, as identity politics has become more and more, um, kind of popular for people? Like, are we imagining a world in which a sort of uh, non-offensive whiteness sits alongside other racial identities? Mm. Or are we imagining a world in which there is no whiteness and white is not actually a relevant racial category? And, you know, if you go back and read James Baldwin or something, like, he's very clear that he thinks whiteness should not exist. I mean, that it's just, it's... It's not going, there's, there's nothing worth saving in the idea of whiteness. And I felt like a little bit that, that some of that perspective had dropped out um, of the conversation. And so I originally set out with the intent to sort of, you know, look at the present and future of whiteness. But of course, I realized very quickly, as I always end up doing, that like to talk about the present or future, you really have to talk about the past. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so ended up getting into like much more about the past of whiteness and, and what it has done and how it brings us and conditions our choices that we have now. Mm. And, and, and so I really want to pick up on this idea of inoffensive whiteness because putting my cards on the table, I'm probably more of the school of thought that doesn't see a version of whiteness that can be rehabilitated. Um, you mentioned Kaufman, Eric Kaufman, who I think yeah. is one yeah. of the most prominent people to try and find some kind of rehabilitation of whiteness. What does what does an inoffensive version of whiteness look like? Um, I mean, my card's on the table too. I, I'm very much on your side, but I think Kaufman sees, he says, look, whiteness has become an ethnic identity. I don't think he disputes the history of whiteness. I think here and there he has some arguments with it, but he, he knows that history. Um, but he says whiteness has become an ethnic identity like any other, and we cannot reasonably ask people to suppress that. Um, and he says, moreover, if we do ask them to suppress it, it's just going to force people to more and more extreme versions of white racial identity. So if you don't let people have, you know, their kind of mild milk toast appreciations of their whiteness, then they're going to run off to the alt-right or they're going to become white nationalists or something like that. Um, I frankly disagree with that diagnosis. I, I think that, you know, in the in the period when I was growing up, you could sort of imagine a world where that was the case, where whiteness kind of just kept becoming more and more um, devoid of any positive content. Um, you know, I start the piece in The Guardian talking about the satirical blog stuff white people like, which came out in 2008. Yeah. And that was really, you know, that was making fun of this idea that, like, whiteness is nothing. There's, like, no content there. It's just, like, what is it? It's people who, like, you know, I think the, the author of it said, you know, it's like, what? It's like people who like Bon Jovi and Led Zeppelin. Like, th like this is not a, a real cultural identity. And so he got a lot of mileage out of that, that single joke. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, over the past 10 years, we've really seen what happens when people start to think and talk about whiteness more. And... In some cases, certainly, um, the reaction is that they say, wait a second, we need to do something about this. But I think by far the much more, um, I'll say the much more visible response has been people say, yeah, I'm white. And um, I, you know, I like the privileges that come with being white. And I'm going to do the things that I need to do to maintain those privileges. So it's not the case, which I think was this kind of nice liberal fantasy around, again, like the early 2000s, like, oh, people start to just talk about their whiteness more then it'll go away and it'll become this innocuous thing. At least in my view, like when people start talking about it, it actually sometimes has the reverse effect and people much more are much more likely to say, you know what, like I'm going to vote for a president who says that he's going to take care of people like me. I'm going to support policies that are going to protect people like me. Um, mm. it's, you know, it's not the kind of thing that you can just hope will wither away. Um, yeah. Which was eye opening for me and frankly kind of surprising. I mean, I think, uh, you know, without thinking too much about it in my kind of early adult years, I just sort of assumed that. Like, yeah, it's like I'm white, but what does it really mean? It doesn't mean anything. Kind of embarrassing, kind of awkward. But, you know, we're we're just going to kind of ignore it and hope it goes away was, I think, a little mm -hmm. bit of the attitude. But so the interesting thing to me, I guess maybe, and I wonder whether this is like a European thing, slightly different to an American thing because of the histories, but the you know, blackness in an American context emerges not least because of a, 
uh, uh, people who have been ripped from their history, ripped from their identities, and they need to forge uh, an identity, uh, particularly in the face of uh, a supremacist ideology which seeks to denigrate all aspects of them and has the power to define them. But um, white people, people who are racialized as white, have a different you know, history. They are able to look back to aspects of European history and find uh, aspects of Euro European history, surely, that are not all offensive and oppressive, or are they? Uh, no, I mean, I think you can certainly look back. There's plenty of, you know, incredible testaments to human creativity and ingenuity in the history of Europe. Um, but I think what you need to ask yourself is like, were those conducted under the banner of whiteness and were they conducted under the banner of furthering whiteness? And if so, were they conducted as they probably were in the service of an ideology of white supremacy, right? right. So, uh, you know, you have someone like Kant who in some contexts is one of the great expositors of human freedom and what it means to be free and what it means to have, um, you know, a certain kind of dignity as a human being um, he was also racist, and he didn't right. think that those things applied to all human beings. Uh, he, you know, it's it's not as well known, but he was he was just a frank racist. And yeah. you can say the same thing about John Locke. And I think that and Rousseau and so many others. Of course, yeah. 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 And I think that um, you know you can't. It's not a question of saying like, oh, these are good people, these are bad people. Um, we throw them all away, we put them on pedestals. I think it's a matter of understanding and trying to understand as best we can, like, what did they actually think? Why did they think this? And are there parts of what they think that are still usable for us today? You know, like, are there parts of Kant's or Locke's thought that are still usable to, for us today, um, even knowing that they were also racist in these very direct and frankly, awful ways. Um, and that's a question, you know, for philosophers or whatever. But I think you can go down the line and do that, whether it's the arts, whether it's music or whatever. Um, the very simplistic idea of like, oh, we just need to throw everybody in the, in the dumpster or whatever, that doesn't have a lot of, um, you know, it just, just seems like a very caricatured version of what's actually at stake in these discussions. Yeah, I, ha I have to agree, particularly when you take any idealized figure of any ethnic or cultural background, there's so much nuance to who people were as individuals. Um, and sometimes the people we idealize the most had really problematic private lives, really problematic attitudes to women or, um, you know, to ethnic minorities. And it's, and it's the, the quest, of course, to find what, uh, you know, is, is there a moral purity, I guess, that we can seek out? Or is there another way to, uh, to build uh, a, a vision of the, uh, of an identity that manages to filter through, um, the, the muck to, to retain only the, the purities, if you like, or the good, the good aspects that we'd like to retain, um, of, indi of individual thinking. But, um, I, I wanted to ask you whether you think that part of the the problem with the, the resurgent whiteness that we're seeing that, you know, you mentioned in the piece of resurgent whiteness of Brexit and Trump and, and of course, in Europe here, uh, the, the far right, you know, um, 
we uh, which we're seeing now ahead of the French elections in in very very apparent. It, do you think that part of this is because instead of countering whiteness and offering up, there has been no alternative offering in terms of an identity, so that you dismantle something, but you don't offer people an alternative means of identifying with a collective in a way that feels empowering. So then people just fall back on pre-existing identities. It's something I've been thinking about. Everyone craves belonging. Everyone needs to feel part of something. Uh, whiteness offered a very toxic vision for belonging. It's one that has to be challenged and dismantled. But what what are we offering in its place? I certainly think there's something to that, right? And I think that there's, this is a well-known problem that goes back a hundred more years. Like, what do you do when kind of people start to join the political systems through democracy? They start to kind of join the middle classes um, as economic situation improves in these various countries. And they demand a sort of recognition for themselves and a certain affinity. Like, who am I in the world? What do I mean? I think that's all the case. You know, it's also people have noted it's coincident with the decline of religion. So what once was a very important source of identity for many people has kind of fallen away. But I think, you know, I'm at least uh, what I would like to say is realistic enough. But I think some people might say cynical enough to believe that these racial divisions have also been consciously exploited by people um, mm. in very direct ways. I don't think that it's. It's not just that uh, this would have happened in any case. I mean, I think if you look at a figure like Donald Trump, like this is who he is. And he actively set out to exploit these divisions and to mm. use them for his own benefit. Um, I think that there are, you know, not every aspect of the Brexit campaign was like this, but some of them certainly were um, to exploit the fears about immigration, to exploit the fears about people who don't look like you or your family. Um, this is something, it's a well-known and unfortunately a very often successful political tactic that's been used since the beginning of time. And, you know, in the year 2021, racial divisions are just one of the ones that are particularly salient and particularly available for somebody who wants to engender that kind of division. So, mm. yes, I mean, it would be nice if there was kind of a broader cushion of identity, I guess you could say, that people could, you know, would say, well, I don't need what whiteness is offering me because I have these other aspects of identity that I can rely on. Um, but I think we would be uh, a little bit naive to to not also address the fact that these things have been consciously exploited and, um, and you know, really to pernicious effect. Mm. Um I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something that resonates maybe particularly with me because my I identify first and foremost by my religious identity. And so my religious identity then informs how I think about the world and my racial identity within that. So although my racial identity is probably the most salient aspect in terms of the impact that I have on the world externally, it's probably not the main filter or it certainly doesn't feel like the primary filter uh, for my moral outlook, which is dictated um, from um, um, an Eastern religion, in fact. 
But anyway, it's it's something I've been thinking about because belonging and identity and, uh, as you say, the divisions that are being exploited along those lines seems to be one of the big pressing questions uh, for us, at least in Europe and certainly for you, you guys in, in the US as well. And thinking about new ways of belonging is is something that I, I sense is is connected to the responsibility of dismantling whiteness. You can't just... Uh, you know, we, we, we can pull it apart, we have to pull it apart, but we, we need to offer something that people can hold on to that unites us beyond those divisions. And I'm not sure yet that I'm seeing uh, a vision of that emerge. In fact, that, that brings me on to um, uh, a point that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, Noel Ignatiev, one of the major figures in whiteness studies, he published a magazine called Race Traitor in the 90s, which had as its motto, treason to whiteness is loyalty to humanity. You write in the article, the issue opened with an editorial whose headline was equally provocative, abolish the white race by any means necessary. This demand with its echoes of Sartre by way of Malcolm X was not, as it turned out, a call for violence, much less for genocide. As Ignatiev and his co-editor John Garvey explained, they took as their foundational premise that the white race is a historically constructed social formation, a sort of club whose membership consists of those who partake of the privileges of the white skin in this society. Is there anything quite as radical today in its call um, uh, as as what Noel Ignatiev is demanding white people do in the 90s, would you say? Well, I think that people, you know, there are still a lot of people who are sympathetic to that point of view. And I am at some level um, very sympathetic to that point of view. I mean, I think that what Ignatiev called the new abolitionism is essentially the right idea. I think the much harder question, which he was never able to quite crack, and he was a brilliant guy and like a very devoted activist, so it's no knock on him. Um, it's just a sign of how big the problem is. Mm. But the, the, what was hard for him was how do you actually get there? Like, what do we actually, what does it mean to take apart that historically constituted club, especially when it's had 300 years to embed itself in our lives in the way it has? You know, just going back to what I said at the beginning, like, you can read whiteness into the boundaries of neighborhoods and cities. You can see mm -hmm. it in national economic statistics. You know, it's like, it's, it's not a natural fact. And yet it has left traces within our lives that are not something that we can just wish away and decide mm -hmm. tomorrow is you know, something we don't have to worry about. Yeah, and so there has, do you feel that there are any pioneers that, that are particularly white people who are as invested as Noel Ignatiev was? You know, I know he was as a PhD who, who ended up going to work in, in a factory to be connected to the working class struggle. I mean, he is obviously a, a committed activist and thinker. Is there anyone that you found in your research who's sort of pioneering this, a, a, a contemporary way of thinking of these things? Well, look, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I think it's the oftentimes the people who are most clear eyed about whiteness are people who are not racialized as white. And right. I've certainly found that to be the case, you know, whether you reach back to Du Bois um, or even beyond that. I mean, you know, like people were thinking about whiteness, people who are not white were thinking about whiteness for a long time. Um, or whether it's present day writers, you know, whether it's Nicole Hannah Jones, whether it's Ta-Nehisi Coates, whether it's, um, 
any number of writers, Eve Ewing, you know, there's just a lot of people who I think have really contributed to our sense of what whiteness is and how it functions. Um, and I think, you know, there's also white people who are doing that work and trying to think about what it means and what it ought to mean. Um, but look, I'll be frank, it's a very fraught territory, right? And I think that anybody who's white and who is thinking and writing about these subjects and is not conscious of the history of the ways in which whiteness can make itself the center of attention and can make itself kind of reclaim that attention, you know, yeah. you have to, you have to be aware of that, that that's a constant danger. And that was ultimately the knock on whiteness studies, right? Was that what started yeah. out as this radical movement to abolish the white race and to get rid of this idea of whiteness ended up in a different way, sort of putting whiteness at the center of everything. And, and it's a double bind because if you look at the historical record, appeals to whiteness really were a central force. I mean, it was, it was on, it was on behalf of whiteness that all of these horrible things were done throughout history. And right. yet we don't want to just make whiteness the center of our history and our present today. And so it's a constant struggle to like, how do we talk about these things? How do we correctly diagnose what's going on? Well, at the same time, not just returning the attention back to ourselves as white people or as, you know, sort of inadvertently doing the thing that we're trying to not do. Right. I thought it was really interesting that um, whiteness studies began as like a subdivision of black studies and that some of the issues you describe emerged when it kind of became untethered from black studies, where in some cases it would create, it would be, it would form its own department. So what they'd be like a whiteness studies department, which would stand alongside black studies maybe, but wouldn't necessarily be accountable to it. Um, and so I always come back to that idea that sort of the interrogation of whiteness has to exist within a dialectic, right? It has to exist, but not within a dialectic of equals, because the vision and understanding of whiteness that white people have will never be the same as those who are experiencing it every minute of the day. So that sort of idea that any interrogation of whiteness has to exist within a almost like a supervision um, uh, by, you know, in, in the academic world, black, blackness studies seems to me a, a, a quite an important way of conceptualizing how we think about and discuss and um, in some ways those who are activists plan uh, their challenges to whiteness. Um, sorry, tell me. No, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, you just have to kind of keep in mind always that the way that whiteness operates at a most basic level is to define a group of people against some other group of people. You know, in the U.S., the other group of people is almost always starts with being black people and then kind of in an attempt to create this artificial symmetry, we say, well, what about, you know, are we going to have a group of Asian Americans? Are we going to have a group of L Latino Americans? You know, like, how, how are we going to kind of fit everybody else in? But whiteness is not something that exists in and of itself. From the very beginning, it's defined by its opposition to other groups of people. And I think that if you're not keeping that constantly in mind, then you're going to lose sight very quickly of what's going on. Mm. Um, I, I wanted to come back to a, a poll that you cite in your article. Um, you cite a, a Pew poll that found that half of white Americans thought there was too much discussion of racial issues uh, and a similar proportion suggested that seeing racism where it didn't exist, quote unquote, was a bigger problem than not seeing racism where it did. Um, does the mainstreaming of conversations on whiteness necessarily equate to 
we're challenging of that system of power. We've talked a little bit already about, I guess, some of the unintended consequences. Do you think that there are risks as well in having conversations around whiteness, maybe in a way that isn't necessarily always understandable or accessible or or maybe it can just inherently in um, sort of reinforce divisions in some cases? Sure. And I think if it's done in the shorthand version of cable news um, or Twitter or whatever, you often end up with that. Um, there's always risks. I mean, these are complicated, hard questions about really naughty subjects um, in American and world history, right? And um, one of the things that you find very quickly, I think, is that any discussion, you know, as I say in the piece, basically up until around 1950 or so, any discussion of whiteness just was a discussion of white supremacy. I mean, there was no attempt to try and separate out some idea of whiteness that was separate from the idea of white supremacy. After mm. World War II, after the civil rights movement, after anti-colonial movements, that changes. Um, and there starts to be this kind of, you know, divergence basically where people want to say like, well, we can talk about whiteness in this semi-innocuous way um, as separate from white supremacy. Um, but when you're having those conversations now and you bring up this idea that whiteness comes out of an idea of white supremacy, which is ultimately this idea of entrenched privilege, um, you run up very quickly against, I think, which is just a basic fact that people don't like to be told that they've been privileged. You know, I think seen from within their own lives, everyone thinks that they're having a you know, a semi-difficult time of it, uh, to yeah. be frank, you know, um, everyone can point to the challenges that they've had in their lives, the things that they've had to overcome, um, the things that were difficult, that looked hard to them. And I think oftentimes when somebody is confronted with what they see as the accusation that they have had it easy, they say, no, wait a second, like, look at all these ways in which my life was difficult for me. How dare you tell me that I'm privileged? So that's just a real kind of basic stumbling block that I think... Mm -hmm is something that you have to get past. And, you know, the way to do that is to really show the ways in which this is obviously, whiteness obviously acts at a personal level and we see it at a personal level, but it's oftentimes much easier for people to understand it when you show whiteness working at a systematic level and you can right. show them the ways in which it was entrenched in law, in which it was entrenched in custom. Um, you can show the history of it, right? It's always a little bit safer to talk about history because then it's not an accusation of you right now enjoying this benefit. But if people can see like, oh, right, I understand how neighborhoods got redlined in the 40s and 50s, mm -hmm. um, they might be able to see like, huh, maybe that's why my own neighborhood is 95% white. Mm. Um, and so I think that's, you know, yes, these conversations are risky and there's no way around that. But I do think that um, if you have the conversations, oftentimes you can bring people around to show what's really going on here and what's really at stake. Do you think challenging whiteness necessarily implies a loss of privilege? And if so, is that an argument that can be made to most people? Yes, I think it does. I mean, I think, you know, the etymology of privilege is, it comes from the words for private law. Mm. And the question is, like, should there be a private law for some people that that benefits them while it doesn't benefit other people? I think, you know, what we see today, this is not universally the case, but often the case, the way that white privilege works today is a sort of immunity from bad things happen rather than, you know, mm. what people would think of as like a positive effect. 
um, they're not going to get stopped by police as often. They're not going to have the problems getting a mortgage for their house as often, those sorts of things. Um, so in some senses, yeah, I think we should be frank that like this does entail a, a loss of privilege in the sense that you're not, you don't get to be special on account of the amount of melanin in your skin. Um, but really, if you talk to a lot of those people, you know, they will say, all I want is for me and my children to be treated like anybody else. And if, if that's the case, if that's really the case, then that's something you can work with because you're saying that's all we're trying to do here is we're trying to make sure that people are not treated differently based again on this like strange, you know, fact of the, of the melanin in their skin. Mm. I, I, I ask because I wonder how, how achievable it is to uh, rely on uh, people's goodwill to uh, concede uh, uh, privilege versus making the moral argument for, raising uh standards of equality <laughs> uh which i you know one uh, but but i think in reality it becomes much more complicated i remember a conversation around you know i think it, it was a uh, one of the Amer guests who, who i'd spoken to who lives in america saying that in her neighborhood the schools were essentially divided along racial lines and that part of what she proposed was a mixing of uh, the schools, but that there was opposition to that uh, from various parents, actually for different reasons. Um, and that the obviously the usual uh, argument was about academic standards. And what she was saying was that it was really difficult to make parents see that the argument being made in support of academic standards was actually an argument in support of whiteness because it materially speaking meant maintaining segregated schools. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm just always thinking very concretely about, you know, what we know of human psychology, what we know of how to affect social change, how much of this can rely on, uh, you know, the, the 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 goodwill and the, the the moral uprightness of a few people versus um you know an, another way of, of of pressuring change i don't know what your thoughts are on that sure i mean i think at a basic level you can't just rely on goodwill because if you could then either the problem of whiteness would have never been a problem to begin with or it would have gone away very quickly right it would have corrected itself if if, if goodwill was the answer then you don't have the kind of deep embedded systems that we continue to have. Mm -hmm. um, and so at some level, these are systemic problems and at a very deep level, these are systemic problems and they need the kind of systemic answers that only, you know, either changes in consciousness broadly and or changes in laws and customs can achieve. Yeah. Um, the example of school is a, is a really interesting one. And obviously it's one of the kind of front lines where a lot of this plays out. And I think, in some senses, it's maybe one of the harder um, arenas for this to be decided because, you know, I have two young kids. I have kids who are six and eight. And I think that when you ask parents uh, to do things for themselves, there's a certain sort of decisions that they would make. Um, I won't say that parents are at their most irrational when it comes to their kids, but certainly there's a kind of real... Um, no, there is. You can say that. It's just a different, you know, it's a different kind of, yeah. just say it's a different kind of rationality that sets in when you're dealing yeah. with kids. It's, it's animalistic. It's that kind <laughs> yeah. of like protect. Yeah, it's costs. really deep. Yeah. And so I think, you know, 
I think in some senses we're kidding ourselves if we think that like schools are going to be the first things that we're going to solve, because I think that that is that gets at these really deep questions. Um, but I think there, too, it points to the need for things like government to step in, because then it can help relieve parents of having to make that what they feel like is like the decision of like, oh, am I making the decision based on whiteness, based on my child's well-being? You know, am I yeah. like trying to balance all of these things that they're maybe not in the best position actually to decide, you know, mm. because they have so much investment. You need somebody who's nominally at least outside and, and can look at this at a system-wide level to actually be able to say, like, here's what we're going to do that's the best approximation of fairness we can establish. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, obviously some parents are not going to like that. I mean, they're not going to like having that choice taken out of their hands. But I do think that there's a fair number of them that will, that will say, like, look, I want what's best for my kid, but I also want what's best for my kid in a system that's generally and broadly fair. And so mm. tell me what that system is. Tell me what my kid needs to do. And, you know, I'll try to help them succeed within it. But, yeah. um, you know, I think we, we often hear from the minority of people who are saying, you know, like the whole system needs to be thrown out and my kid's being held back because they're white, et cetera, et cetera. I just don't think that's a, that's a representative view of most parents. Mm. Yeah, well, we would hope not. I, I was, yeah. for some, some reason, thinking when you were speaking of um, uh, Dave Chappelle's recent comedy uh, special on Netflix, which has, has received uh, a, a whole load of controversy, but for different reasons. But uh, he, he, he makes a point in there of um, he has a critique of the Me Too movement in, in the skit where he says, uh, you know, he supports the movement wholeheartedly. He has a whole obviously section talking about feminism. And then he says, but I really had an issue with the methodology, basically. I really had an issue with the idea that, you know, what's really going to fuck with the patriarchy? We're just going to wear black dresses to the Emmys, you know, or whatever, whatever award season it was. And I was listening to it thinking... Are we suffering, you know, white people more generally, those of us who claim to uh, want to dismantle, challenge the system of whiteness, are we guilty of wearing black dresses to the Emmys? Certainly there's always a temptation, right? And the temptation is there because that's the thing that doesn't actually really cost you anything. Um, I think that, like, first of all, I should just say I reject that description of what Me Too was actually about. I mean, that's not actually for anybody who can remember, you know, back to 2017 when Me Too was a real thing and like in the yeah. kind of full hype, it was not about women wearing black dresses to the Emmys. It was right. about listening to women talk about the experiences they've had in the workplace in public uh, many times for the first time, you know, and like hearing stories that maybe had been whispered about or traded, um, you know, in private, but that were coming out in public and saying like, look at how awful this situation has been for so many women um, who are just trying to go to work and do their jobs. And so, yeah. first of all, it's worth saying that, like, yeah, as a, as a, you know, like, are we worried about these kind of, um, you know, decorative, uh, symbolic things that, that air too much on the side of symbolism? Absolutely. And if you ever find yourself um, at a point where all you're doing is talking symbolism, sure. But, you know, I think there's a real lesson in me too actually for thinking about whiteness which was like listen to what people are telling you you know like mm -hmm. for me like 
Yeah. As somebody who thought of himself as like a generally decent guy, you know, it was still completely eye-opening to hear all these stories coming out from people, from women about what it was like just to go to their job and to kind of be harassed on this basic level at, you know, on any given day. And I think that there's something similar going on. It's like, right. If you want to know what whiteness means, um, it's not just important to think about what whiteness means for you, but ask your friends, ask your colleagues about white who are not white, what whiteness means to them, you know, Mm -hmm. like just stop talking for a minute and listen to them, let them tell you about it. Um, yeah. You know, I think that there's, you know, a lot of people who are not white have been kind of conditioned that like white people just don't want to hear that and it's not worth talking about it and it's not going to go anywhere and it's going to get them in trouble or get them, you know, kind of labeled as a troublemaker or whatever. And, um, and I think it's incumbent on white people to make a space for those kinds of conversations to have happen and to like, just shut up for a bit and listen to what other people have to say to, to say to us. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, um, and also, of course, um, the you're, you're right in recalibrating what Me Too uh, really was about, because, of course, there, it was also a, a movement started by Tarana Burke, <laughs> who was working with uh, poor black women who were uh, experiencing uh, sexual assault and who, who weren't able to speak up about it. So, I mean... Yeah, it was not, of course, just uh, these actresses um, choosing to wear black dresses. But um, we are almost at the end of the show. Uh, Before we move to the quickfire session, I did want to ask you whether you uncovered anything in researching this really in-depth article on whiteness that you didn't know prior. Was there anything like that really was shocking or or, or that has changed you in, in doing that research? Yeah, I know you spoke to Emma Debiri about this, but the history of um, how whiteness as a category came to really be defined in law for the first time in the 17th century in Barbados and the West Indies was really eye-opening to me. I think, you know, first of all, like in America, at least, our understanding of the history of these racial categories is pretty poor in general. Um, But that was just something, I think, in part because the research is relatively new, um, in part because of that poverty of of racial education I just hadn't really known much about. And I just found it fascinating the way in which you can systematically, step by step, watch this category be enshrined into law to the point where, Mm -hmm. you know, from one year to the next, you can watch a set of laws talk about Christians, and then the following year, they talk about whites. And it's just clear as day what's happening there. Mm -hmm. Um, I found that really really kind of interesting because it's often not that clear cut. And obviously there are lots of things that feed into what we now know as whiteness. So it's not just that this one fluke of history happened um, in that time, but it is a really dramatic instance of, um, of whiteness taking shape um, in a way that, you know, give him all kinds of credit that W. Du Bois said was happening, you know, in 1910. I mean, he said, this yeah. is exactly how whiteness, this is whiteness is this new thing. It was invented by, white people and you know history has borne him out um and so all credit to him yeah i um i also found that section where you talk about how for example missionaries were discouraged from converting africans because if they became christian then they might be entitled to equivalent rights to 
uh, American Christians who were white Christians. Uh, but of course, at that time, white wasn't the dominant category of, of belonging. Um, and it was, you know, that's not just hypothetical. I mean, there was actually a case where a formerly enslaved African woman sued and won her freedom based on her newfound Christian Christian status. So it's mm-hmm. it was this was a real issue for them. And I think that's worth keeping in mind. You know, like this was this was these were not abstract categories for these people. They they were real things that they were jousting with um yeah. years ago. And also the malleability of whiteness is always something the more I learn about whiteness, the more I'm uh you know, I guess shocked you know at the ways in which it's adaptive and even in the way we talk about whiteness now being conscious of the fact that whiteness has always found ways to adapt to ways in which we seek to challenge it in order to make it seem more innocuous less visible at least to the people who are holding power uh, and you can really see that situation. yeah I mean you can really see that in the 1910s and 20s in the U.S. Supreme Court there were a series of cases that basically tried to define whiteness because um, U.S. immigration law basically said, U.S. laws talked about this category of free white people, so they had to know what counted as a white person. Mm. And you can watch the court just twist itself into pretzels trying to define what whiteness is. Okay, well, first they say whiteness means that you're Caucasian. Then they have somebody, I think it was a a Brahmin from India who came over and said, well, I'm of Caucasian descent. So I'm white. And they say, no, no, we don't mean you, you know, and then they they go through a series of cases like that. And eventually you end up at the point where one of the Supreme Court justices is like, look, we're kind of we mean white what everybody knows what white means. Like, just sort of, you know, stop bothering us almost with this, with these technicalities. If we went with what anthropologists told us Caucasian meant, then we'd have to include Polynesians in the category. And every common man knows that, you know, Polynesian isn't white. So you see the real like. The, the real fluidity and as and also the determination to say, look, this is an ideological category and all the scientific apparatus around it is secondary to the to the ideological needs that this category is serving. Mm. Well, and on that note, I think we should go to our quick fire round. Um, all right. These are quick questions with quick answers. Um, definition of whiteness. Oh, a system of, uh, I would say a system of oppression based on racial categories. What is the root of racism? The root of racism is an attempt to divide human beings based on certain characteristics of their bodies. What is the opposite of whiteness? Gosh, Uh, opposite of whiteness. I don't know that there is one. I, 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 I'd have to say I don't know that there is one. It doesn't work in that way. It's not the kind of category that has an opposite. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? There could be a post-racial world. I don't think that we live in it. Um, and I think whether or not it's desirable depends on what categories take the place of racial categories. Um, I'll leave it there. It- is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? Yes, it's useful as a diagnostic tool. Thank you so much, Bobby Baird. If people want to connect with your work, with your ideas and your writing, is there anywhere that you would like to refer them to? 
Uh, sure. I have a website, Robert P. Baird, and my email address is on there, so they can write to me there. Fantastic. Well, uh, that leaves me just to thank you one more time for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.